Last week we looked at uh, Joshua chapter 6 and we saw how the walls of the city came down, that first stronghold uh, in the land that needed to come down in order for the people of God to enter into God's promise. Chapters 7 and 8 of Joshua look at the stronghold of a place called Ai and how that stronghold came down. We will look at that story uh, the next time that I uh, preach and I'll explain why we'll, we're doing that, that way around uh, then. So we're moving on a little bit further into the book of Joshua. The stronghold of Jericho has come down. The stronghold of Ai has come down. And now we're in chapter 9 edging their way step by step into God's uh, promise. A picture of what it's like for us all of the time. We don't suddenly go from nowhere into the fullness of God's promise. We go step by step from glory into glory, the Bible tells us. We make our way slowly, purposefully, but ever deeper into God's promise for our lives. So that's where we are, Joshua chapter 9. And let's remind ourselves for a moment what the legitimacy was for the Israelites to be taking the land. This land of Canaan was awful. There was perversion, bestial activity, child sacrifices, live children were thrown into furnaces, their bones broken at random in order to appease the gods. People were physically and sexually abused. There was occult activity where dark powers were invited to reign. Sorcery and witchcraft was fostered and encouraged. It was a place that over the years had got darker and darker and darker and darker. Evil had flourished and was now raging rampant and out of control. And God had been saying for several generations, this must stop. If you do not stop, I will stop it for you. I will come and stop it myself. This sin is so awful, so hideous. I cannot, I will not let it carry on. Did they listen? No. Did they stop? No. Was God incredibly patient? Yes. Way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God said this would happen. Did they listen? No. The inhabitants of this land were facing the very long overdue judgment of God. It's why the cities were being totally destroyed. It's why the temples of darkness were being raised to the ground. Places where the powers of evil had been given sway and were worshipped and were flourishing, all flattened. It couldn't go on. It must come to an end. Such obscenity needed to be totally rooted out of the land. And furthermore, the people of Canaan knew ultimately that it was God's doing. Remember way back in chapter 2, the story of Rahab. Rahab said, speaking to the spies, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. That's why a great fear has fallen on all of us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. You would have thought then that the people in the land, knowing that such a calamity was about to befall them, would have chosen to do something about it. But no, they stood defiant. Except that is for Rahab, and as we shall see today, the Gibeonites. The whole nation, apart from uh, that woman and these people, stood defiant against God's coming judgment. Think how the whole of Jericho remained defiant for those seven days as the people of God had walked around in worship. The Gibeonites, though, were different. 
And that's our story for this morning. They knew the judgment was coming and they wanted to save themselves. They lived just eight miles outside Jerusalem, northwest, roughly, and uh, they had heard all about what had happened to Jericho. They'd heard all about what happened to Ai. They thought, my goodness, we've got to do something. It's the last thing we want to happen to us. So in an attempt to save themselves, not knowing what else to do, they resorted to a ruse, a trick. They attempted and succeeded into tricking the Israelites. Knowing that God's judgment was falling on the people of the land, they thought that if they convinced Israel that they were not part of this country with all its wickedness, if they could just convince Israel that they had come from a long way away, then Israel would have no reason to harm them and so would happily let them live. They knew their Bibles. They knew that Israel's only authority to destroy was in that particular land. It was God's judgment against that particular people. They had no right to go willy-nilly here, there and everywhere, uh, taking nations and cities on. God had not given them permission to do that. And so they thought, if we pretend that we're from somewhere else, then maybe we'll be saved. And who can blame them? It was worth a go, and so that's exactly what they did. They turn up at the Israelites with the pretense of having travelled a long way. They resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation, verse 4, whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks, old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put uh, worn and pat sandals on their feet. They wore old clothes. All their bread was mouldy and dry, as if they had been travelling on a long journey. And so they said, we've come from a distance. Make a treaty with us. You notice also that they didn't talk about what had just happened in Jericho and what had just happened in Ai. That would have given them away as locals. They talked instead about stuff that had happened much longer ago. Egypt and the Red Sea. Stuff that was much more widely known. Israel falls for their ruse. Hook, line and sinker. They were deceived. And this is our first main thought. Israel's failure. Israel's failure. They were deceived. Why were they deceived? Verse 14 tells us. Why were they caught out? They were deceived. They were caught out because they did not listen to God. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of God the Lord. They got distracted, in other words, by the Gibeonites' clothes, by their wineskins, by their broken sandals and mouldy bread, and thought it must be true. They listened to everything that was going on around them, but they did not listen to what God was saying. And so they were deceived. Here is a big mistake that we can so easily make in our lives. We can listen to everything going on around us instead of listening to God. And the result is that we too, in our lives, can be so easily deceived. Many people today are listening to everything going on around rather than the words that are coming to us from above. And I wonder whether here this morning there are areas in your life and indeed in mine where we're being deceived because we're listening to everything around us instead of inquiring or listening to God. For example, 
We could be deceived by looking at everything around us instead of listening to God into thinking that money and materialism bring us happiness and give meaning to our lives. That's the way the world lives. Everywhere we look, people are saying that you will feel what you want to feel if you have this and if you have that. That these things make our lives worth living. They give our lives meaning. A more realistic version of the Lord's Prayer for our culture might go something like this. Our marks which art with Spencer's. Hallowed be thy food hall, thy Gucci watch, thy Kuke bag in Hermes, as it is in Harrods. Give us each day our visa gold, and forgive us our overdraft, as we forgive those who stop our next card. And lead us not into Dorothy Perkins, and deliver us from Topshop, for thine is the Nafnaf, the Cartier, and the Versace, for Gaultier and Eternity, Amex. The world would deceive us, that true meaning comes from what we have. But God says, even if in this world what you have increases, for goodness sake, for heaven's sake, do not set your heart on them. Why? Because if you set your heart on them, it will never give you what you're looking for. In fact, if you love money, you'll be miserable because you'll never have enough. And if you love wealth, you'll never be satisfied with what you've got. And so years later, Jesus would say, whatever you do, don't set your heart on some material things. They'll make you miserable. If you set your heart on them, you'll never have enough. If you set your heart on them, you'll be sad because they'll break down. They'll wear out. They'll lose their appeal. They'll fade away. And yet the lengths we go for just a little bit more suggests that we're listening to what's going on around and falling for the same deception. Debt is spiralling out of control in our country because of our insatiable desire for a little bit more. And it's a trick. It's a con. It's a ruse. And if we're not careful, just like those outside, we will fall for it hook, line and sinker. I couldn't find the exact detail of this, but there was uh, some research that was done uh, globally, and it went something like this, that once the average income of a society goes above £10,000, which, let's face it, is nothing in the West, once the average income goes above £10,000, happiness no longer increases with income. There's a man in the Bible who was focused on all that he could achieve. And he'd done well for himself. In fact, he'd done so well that he couldn't fit all that he had into his barns, so he'd had to knock them down and build bigger barns. And then he had to do the same again. And he was looking for that day when he could sit back and enjoy all that he had created for himself. And then he died. And God writes the obituary. You know, the, the, the back of the times, the, the great columns that are written about great people. God writes the obituary on this man. And it's two words. You Fool. You fool. That's all he wrote. You fool, signed Jesus. And yet he had done all the kind of things that we do. He had aspired to make good for himself and his family, just like we aspire to make good for ourselves. But it got out of control in his life, and Jesus said, you fool. One of my abiding memories of Kenya 
was of young people gathering around an oil lamp at night, singing with great enthusiasm a song that they loved to sing, Jesus is the winner man. They had no shoes to walk the miles to school. They had no family other than the orphanage in which they lived. The clothes were the ones they could make. There was no running water, no baths, no electricity, no flushing toilet. The kitchen was a concrete floor. But when they sang, Jesus is the winner man, you couldn't help but sense and know that they had found something that we simply do not have. I think we've been deceived. Listening to what's going on around instead of hearing from above. The amount of effort and attention that is spent in our appearance is another huge deception. Cosmetics, cosmetic surgery even, the wafer-thin models of the catwalk, the explosion in eating disorders, the fashion industry. We've been tricked into thinking that real beauty comes from our outward appearance. But it doesn't. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Real beauty is an inner thing, not an outward thing. And it is so much more attractive than our outward appearance. But it's like we've been duped, isn't it? The magazines we read, the adverts on the television that we see, everywhere we look, it's like the way we look matters so much. It doesn't. Who are you going to listen to? Listen to everything that's going on around or hear the little gentle whisper from above. What matters even more than your external beauty, in fact so much more, is the inner beauty. For Kerry and I, some of the most beautiful people in our lives, you would not look at twice. They will never walk on the catwalk. They will never be spread across the centre page of a magazine. But their real beauty fills the space where we are, lights up the room in which they are with love and peace and grace. It's the beauty that matters. One person I'm thinking of rang the other day and left a message on our answer machine. I felt better that day because of the message she had left. That's the beauty we want, isn't it? It's nothing to do with the way you look. But we've been deceived. We've reduced beauty to our appearance and it will end in tears. Can I be honest for a moment? Oh, phew, just... uh, thought you were nervous then about a bit of honesty. There is a law called gravity. There is a law called gravity. And it doesn't matter how tight and pert some things are. There is only one thing that can happen. Because of this law of gravity, everything heads south. Face it. It's the truth. Botox and silicon will not cure, maybe will delay, but everything moves south. Anti-aging cream is like underpinning for your face, but eventually everything moves south. The only thing that seems to be able to thwart this law of gravity is a man's waist that inextricably over time moves up to meet his chest. 
if we focus on the way we look, it will end in tears. But if you're focused on your inner beauty, it can get better and better and better and better. Paul says we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. But inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Not saying you couldn't care less about the way you look externally, but what matters so much more is that inner beauty that should be rising up to bless those around you. So easy to be deceived, isn't it, when we start thinking about it? So easy to look and to listen to the things that we should not be looking at and hearing in terms of the way they shape our lives. It's also easy to be deceived about what great living is really all about. Last Sunday night, we had a tremendous evening with the town pastors who came and shared some fantastic things about what God is doing in our town. And they did a bit of a drama that just reminded me about the way things are, the the things that people regard as a a great time. The drama was of two people on their way home, worse for wear. Did you have a good time? We've had a great time. I think so, I can't remember it. That a great time equals a a, a night you can't remember as you struggle with a headache you now have the next day. And we perpetuate this idea that there is something fantastic about living that kind of way. It should go like this, our beers which are in barrels. Hallowed be thy drink, thy will be drunk, I will be drunk, at home as it is in the local. Forgive us this day our daily spillage as we forgive those who spill us against us, and lead us not into the practice of poncy wine-tasting, and deliver us from alcopops, for mine is the bitter, the ale, and the lager forever and ever, bar men. I'm amazed by what people describe as a good time. It's not a great time when you wake up and can't remember it. It's not a great moment when you vomit on a friend. It's not a great time when you find yourself in somebody else's bed, you're not sure how you got there, you've got no idea what's happened, and you can't quite pin down their name. And yet people say that is the way to live, that's a great way to live, and that pleasure party culture in our town is booming. It's easy to be deceived, isn't it? We've been deceived. Now this is eternal life. This is great living. Not just something when you go to heaven. John used this word eternal life to talk about the most fantastic life you can live here on earth. How would Jesus know he created it in the first place? This is fantastic living that you might know God and his son Jesus Christ. And may God forgive us when we the church have made that look so boring and irrelevant. This is the most fantastic way to live quality of life. And if we don't listen to God, we'll continue to be deceived by all of these things and so much more. We think we're so clever, but let's wake up to the mess in our world. We live in a world, we think it's up when actually it's down. We think it's straight when it's crooked. We think it's right when abundantly it's wrong. We haven't listened. And maybe you're not a Christian yet. Start listening to God about different areas of your life. He will speak to you about these things. He's longing to let you know what's on his heart. So let's get back to our story. 
We're going to move now from Israel's failure to the Gibeonites' fear. Israel's failure was that they didn't listen to God. It's a failure that we need to avoid. And the Gibeonites' fear is a fear that we need to recognize. We need to be careful. You see, they had every reason to be afraid. They had willfully and persistently gone against God's commands. God's judgment was coming. Your servants were clearly told. The Lord your God had commanded to give you the whole land. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. They're having to explain themselves at the end of the story to Joshua. They said, Joshua, we did this because we were scared out of our lives. Because we knew God's judgment was coming. And in the face of God's judgment, we wouldn't stand a chance. So they took urgent action to save themselves. What a contrast with people today. God's judgment is still coming, but we live as though we couldn't care less. The wrath of God is coming. But today we live as if it isn't. As if there is no judgment. As if God has gone soft on sin. As if we can be carefree about what's right and what's wrong. We live as people sometimes as defiant as the cities of Jericho and Ai. We'll do as we please and woe betide anyone who tells us different. We live in denial perhaps. Let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Still others live in belief. I don't believe that God's judgment is coming. I haven't been that bad anyway. The Bible says very soberingly, God's judgment will come. What happened to Jericho and Ai, what could have happened to the Gibeonites, stands, the Bible tells us, as a warning. God's judgment will come. And everyone will have to give an account. We'll have to explain, each of us, for the awful mess of this world. The way we've abused life misused others and ourselves. We'll have to explain for the way we've dishonoured God and marred his image. This is the biggest deception of all, don't you think? That there's nothing coming. That we can do as we please and it doesn't matter. And so we look around the world and you get the idea that there is no God to answer to. If we listen to what's going on, we'll think there are no consequences beyond ourselves. I can do what I like. I can live how I like. It will not matter. No one will hold me to account. But there is an account to be made. We've been tricked into thinking it doesn't matter. We're free to be, to do just as we choose. But we aren't. We're being deceived. The judge, the Bible says, is standing at the door. So I want to ask you today, will you, will we, like the Gibeonites, take some urgent action to be saved? They resorted to a ruse, to a trick. We don't have to. Let's get to the end of the story to find out why. We go from Israel's failure, the Gibeonites' fear, and now we end with Joshua's faithfulness. Joshua's faithfulness. You see, having accepted the Gibeonites' story, they offered the Gibeonites a treaty. And then a few days later, they discovered that the Gibeonites had lied, had tricked them, and the people were furious. And they wanted to kill the Gibeonites instantly for tricking them. 
And the leaders of Israel said, no, you can't do that. We've made a promise. And when we make a promise, our word must be true. So they went to Joshua to try and resolve this dilemma. The Israelites are furious. They want to kill the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites have lied to them. What's Joshua going to do? Whose side is he going to come down on? Joshua lives up to his name. Joshua means the Lord saves. It's the Old Testament name for Jesus, if you like. And so living up to his name, he saves the Gibeonites. Why? Because God is wanting to save. That's what God wants. He wants to save. And maybe Joshua had learned what God wants because of the story of Rahab, the pagan prostitute, that God saved her and her whole family when she turned to him for help. And Joshua was learning something that as the story of the Old Testament would unfold, something that would become more and more obvious. God wants to save. And he is willing to save all who are prepared to come to him for a brand new start. The Gibeonites were willing to leave their lives behind and to start a new life in the community of God's people. They were willing now to do whatever it took to save themselves from God's judgment. We're now in your hands. Do whatever you want with us. We can't carry on as we are. Joshua had understood God's nature. While sin has to be judged, that's not God's heart. The moment there is a change, any opportunity to save, God takes it. Was that why God lingered for seven days around the walls of Jericho, hoping and longing that a few more than just Rahab would come out for salvation? Joshua knew it was God's nature to save. And whilst in desperation, these Gibeonites had tricked them, Joshua honoured their desperation because that's what God is like. It was a foreshadowing of the words of Jesus that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And this is the important bit. The Gibeonites came with all their faults and all their failings, even with their dishonesty and trickery, but God took them on. And more importantly still, they escaped the judgment that was coming. You can come today with all your faults, with all your failings, with all the things that are wrong, or everything about you that is not right, and God will take you on. And you too can escape the judgment that's coming. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The Gibeonites tricked and barged their way through. You come gently and quietly and say, God, I I need your help. I need your help. Why hasn't that judgment come yet? The Bible explains that God is holding off his judgment day, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, literally to come back to him and start to put things right. Will you turn to him like the Gibeonites did? Because a judgment is coming. 
The New Testament name for Joshua is Jesus. That's what God does, God saves. That's what he does, that's what he's like. And when he died on the cross, his fists were not clenched in anger towards us, neither were his arms raised high above us in judgment. When Jesus died on the cross, his hands and his arms were open wide in welcome. A welcome to all who will come and escape the judgment. All who will come and escape God's wrath. You can, if you wish, remain defiant like Jericho. But you know what happened to them. Or you can come in all your need and all your weakness and make peace with God this very day. As if he's still pinned to that cross, his arms remain open wide. Will you come? Will you come today? The Gibeonites knew that God couldn't put off forever the day of his judgment. When you look at this world, how can God put it off forever? But he's holding that day off for a moment. That this day you might come to him and be like them, saved. And begin a new life with the people of God. And if you've lived all your life with this idea of God being a judge and that's all you can see and all that you can hear, then leave today thinking about the cross. Because as the story of God's people unfolded, they began to understand more and more that God was not into judging, he was into saving. And so eventually, finally, when God sent his son, Jesus said, I've come not to judge, not to condemn, but I've come to save that everyone who calls on my name might be saved. We're going to sing together a song that helps us to focus on the cross, that gives us the opportunity in these moments to come back to God, not with trickery, but to come back with all our faults and failings and say, oh God, save me. As Joshua saved, so Jesus saved. You chose the cross, the perfect life, the perfect death. You chose the cross, lost in wonder.